Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jordan moves into the Joseph narrative to discuss Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 4, in a lecture called The Right Hand of Israel. As he does often in this lecture, Jordan does a great job of breaking down some of our preconceived notions about the Joseph narrative. As you're able, do take a look at those links down there in the show notes. Specifically, today we have an article posted by Lindsay Tollefson on parenting during the coronavirus, and we think you will find it very helpful. With that, we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 37 and the life of Jacob. Today we'll turn to Genesis chapter 37, and I'll read as much as we'll do today, verses 1 to 4. Yaakov settled in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan, and these are the begettings of Yaakov. Yosef, 17 years old, used to tend the sheep along with his brothers, for he was serving lad with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Yosef brought a report of them, an ill one, to their father. Now Yisrael loved Yosef above all his sons, for he was the son of old age to him. And he made him a long tunic. That's a best translation. When his brothers saw that it was he whom their father loved above all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak to him in peace. And I think I'll continue reading to the end of this section. Now Yosef dreamt a dream and told it to his brothers. From then on they hated him still more. And he said to them, Pray hear this dream that I've dreamt. Behold, we were binding sheaf bundles out in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose, and it was standing upright. And behold, your sheaves were circling around and bowing to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Would you be king, yes, king over us? Or would you really rule, yes, rule over us? From then on they hated him still more for his dreams, for his words. But he dreamt still another dream and recounted it to his brothers. And he said, Behold, I have dreamt still another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he recounted it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What kind of dream is this that you have dreamt? Shall we come? Yes, come, I, your mother and your brothers, to bow down to you to the ground? And his brothers deeply resented him, while his father kept the matter in mind. The first part of the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 in our chiastic outline. Our outline takes three parts of it. The initial statement, Jacob dwelt in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan, is matched by the last statement in chapter 15 that Joseph dwelt in the land of Egypt. Same language used. And we looked at that a while back. But notice that the contrast here in the language, it says Jacob settled or dwelt in the land, Isaac sojourned in the land. Sojourning is much more temporary, settlement is permanent, at least you intend it to be permanent. So there's an increase in dominion, there's an advance in the maturity of the kingdom here, we're no longer wandering, we're settling down. But, of course, we know that this settling down is not going to last. In fact, we already know it from chapter 34, because a couple of years after this event, 
we have the massacre of the men at Salem, and Jacob has to move away, and of course later on they have to move down to Egypt. But there is a notion of settling here which ties in with the theme that we're about to look at, and that is the government of a nation or community of people that is a major theme in the Joseph story. Remember, up till now, we don't really have a community of people. We just have a family, or a family with one son or two sons. There may be lots of servants and all this kind of stuff, but they aren't free people. They're employees. They're not part of a nation. They're part of a household economy. Now you have these 12 sons. They're growing up. And the problems of government and the beginning of something like a nation and the problems attendant with that begin to come to the fore, and that's a major part of the next things we read. The second section of Genesis 37 is verses 2 to 11, which says the brothers hate Joseph, and it says they hate him, and then they hated him still more, and finally they deeply resented him. Now that's the climax of it. And then they cannot speak to him in peace. And then the third section of the story is where Joseph goes to report on his brothers and then he is sold off into slavery and his oldest brother and his father mourn for him. Well, we're not going to get there today. Today we'll start with this first section where the brothers hate Joseph and can't speak to him in peace and will only do the first two of the reasons that they hate him. There are three reasons why they don't like him. The first is that he brought a bad report about him to their father. The second is that their father gave him a special, as we'll see, royal robe to wear. And the third is that he dreamed these dreams and told them about him that made it out that they're going to be his servants eventually. So there are three problems here, and we're going to look at the first two, time permitting, this morning. Just a note about repeated terms here. If you look at the terms for love and hate, they occur seven times right in this section. Love occurs twice. Israel loved Joseph. His brothers saw this father loved him. The word hate occurs three times. They hated him. They hated him still more. From then on, they hated him still more. The fifth term that's related to this is they couldn't speak to him in peace. And finally, the statement that they deeply resented him in verse 11. Fox has envied here, but that's not really a very good translation. It's not that they were jealous or even envious of what he had. It's that their resentment went even farther than hatred. And as we'll see, the word hate and love and peace are all covenantal terms in this passage. When we read that the brothers hated Joseph, that doesn't necessarily mean that they disliked him. Any more than when Jacob hated Leah, or when we're supposed to hate mother and father for the kingdom's sake, means that we dislike the people. It means that we reject the covenantal relationship that they're put into. The root idea of hatred is rejection, and it doesn't necessarily have to have an emotional aspect to it. But when we get down to the end of the passage and it says they deeply resented him, then we see that the emotional aspect is coming to the fore. But we'll look at that before we're done. The first situation that builds toward Joseph's brothers trying to murder him 
is in verse 2. Joseph, 17 years old, used to tend the sheep along with his brothers, and he was a serving lad or deacon with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a report about them, an evil report, to their father. The word serving lad here, don't know what your translation has, servant, is the word na'ar, which is used for a deacon or anyone who is an acolyte, what Samuel was as a youth. But it can mean an older person as well. Anybody who is a deacon in the church or an assistant can be called this. It doesn't necessarily imply a young man. For instance, you know the story of the 42 children in Bethel that came out and yelled at Elisha and the two bears came out and ate him up. Remember that story? Children is this word here, not are, and they aren't children at all. They are the deacons who served at the golden calf at Bethel. There's nothing about little children being eaten up by bears in that story. It's the servants of the idol shrine who are eaten up by bears. So that's the meaning here. It implies that he is in a state of service. But it also, from the context, it's clear that he has a little bit of authority. And now the question comes, why does it say he is serving with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah? What about the other sons of Leah? Was it just these that were out there with him? And I think if we probe into this, we can see a little bit about the situation. Later on in the chapter, we find that Reuben and Judah are present with the brothers. When they grab Joseph and tear his garment and throw him into a pit, Reuben is there and Judah is there. So I think when it comes to tending the sheep with the brothers, it implies all the brothers, at least all of them that were old enough to be out there doing this. So why is a special mention made of the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah? Well, I've reproduced the chronology here. From the chronology, we can see that some of them were older than Joseph, even older than Levi and Judah, who were sons of Leah. And I've got it here from our previous notes. Remember that Reuben is born first, and then in order for this all to fit within 14 years, we have to have Simeon after two years, and then Rachel deciding that she's going to give her servant girl Bilhah to Jacob, and so Dan is born the next year, then Levi is born to Leah, Naphtali to Bilhah, and then in the seventh year, Judah and Joseph are born. We know when Joseph was born, even though he's listed last, it says after he was born, Jacob wanted to leave and was persuaded to stay for six more years. So Joseph is born then, and then in order to get everything in, we have these other sons who were born afterwards, Gad, Issachar, Asher, Zebulun, and of course Benjamin has not even been born yet at the time of this story of Joseph. So the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah are Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. Dan and Naphtali would have been older than Joseph. Gad and Asher would have been younger. At least that's the most coherent way to look at it. And then we have other sons of Leah who are younger in the way this looks. Initially, I thought, well, Joseph is out there with the younger sons. And the older sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, they're in charge. But that doesn't seem to work because you've got sons of Bilhah who are older than Joseph. 
So I think the resolution is this, that you've got Reuben in charge. That's clear enough. And he is probably assisted by his three full brothers. And then Joseph is second in charge. And he is over the four sons of the servant wives, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. That would be the best way to understand the construction here. He's with all his brothers, and he is a Na'ar, a deacon, over the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. What that would seem to indicate is that you've got some hierarchy in this family. Obviously, you do. You've got the sons of the free wives and the sons of the slave wives. And Joseph's bad report, then, is not a bad report about Reuben and Simeon and Levi, but a bad report about the ones who were under his charge. It says he was serving lad with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, and Joseph brought a report of them. The nearest antecedent to them are these particular brothers and not all the brothers. But the fact is, this would reflect back on all the sons because the older men, Reuben and the others, were in charge of the whole situation. So if he says these young guys are not behaving right or they're not doing right, that reflects bad on everybody and would begin to create some irritation at the very least. We're not told whether the report is true or false. Some of the commentators, you've got a tradition in Calvinism of always assuming the absolute worst of every human being in the Bible. And so anything that can be taken as a sin is, even if there's no real evidence for it. So Wenham and some of the others say, well, other places in the Bible where it says that somebody brought a report, an evil report, it's a lie. Well, maybe. But in this context here, there's no indication it's a lie or true. It just says he did it. It doesn't say he lied about him. It just says he tattled on them. And since he was a Na'ar, since he was a deacon, it was his responsibility to bring a report. I don't think there's anything here that implies something wrong on Joseph's part. Being 17, I'm sure he wasn't filled with wisdom And an older man might have been able to handle the situation better. Of course, if you're 50 and you tell a 14-year-old what to do, you certainly have a little bit more authority than if you're 17 and tell a 14-year-old what to do. But whatever position Joseph was in, I did not see any reason to think that the Hebrew terms here imply that it was a lie or that there was something wrong with bringing this report. It was his job to bring a report. And second of all, when we look at how the brothers behave later on, they don't behave well. And so I think we should assume that what Joseph tells his father is true. Finally, I've got down here, notice that sons older than Joseph were under his supervision. That would be the sons of Bilhah. Joseph is younger than them, but they're under his supervision. And we see here the beginnings of a structured society or a nation. You've got 11 men ranging from the age of 23 down to about 14. And it's not just age, but this is a beginning of a community and there's a structure in it. And in that structure, it's not just age that counts. In a family, it is age that counts. But because of these four wives... 
age is not the only thing that comes into account and because of the number of people involved, who's oldest and who's youngest is not the only thing that goes into account. But if we can see a hint that we're moving into the problems involved in a nation where some people rule over others, even though they're the same age, where a Bill Clinton in his early 50s can be ruling over a righteous Harold Thomas who's in his mid-60s, that's something that happens in a nation, not something that happens in a family. And a family age is what determines things. In a nation, position determines things. And we're moving into that. Now in verse 3, we really begin to see this theme. And this is so often misinterpreted at several levels that we'll spend the rest of our time on it. Verses 3 and 4, the second problem, the second thing that causes the brothers to become unhappy with Joseph is the special tunic. Israel loved Joseph above all his sons, for he was the son of old age to him. That's a good translation of that phrase. Because he wasn't the son of his old age. But it means he counted him as the son of his old age. He was the son of his old age to him. And he made him an ornamented coat. It says here, of course, the King James says a coat of many colors. That comes from the Septuagint. It's not in the Hebrew. No one knows for sure exactly what this means. It's a tunic, but the adjective is hard to understand. We'll talk about it. When his brothers saw that it was he whom their father loved above all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak to him in peace. These are the begettings of Jacob. And then, in verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons. We always have to ask the question why the name Jacob is used and why the name Israel is used, because from here on to the end, sometimes he'll be called Israel, and sometimes he'll be called Jacob. And, of course, one way of doing that, and the wrong way, is to say the name Jacob is used whenever this man is doing something that's kind of wrong. Because Jacob means cheater and deceiver. And the old wicked Jacob, before God changed his name, wasn't converted. And so whenever he relapses and his old sin nature comes popping up, he's called Jacob. That won't work. Of course, we've seen that that's not true at all. The word Jacob means one who replaces. It means second Adam, so to speak. And he was not a bad man. The difference would be that the name Israel speaks of the community that he is in charge of, and it speaks of his office as the head of this community. Whenever Jacob is acting either corporately for the entire community, or when he is acting as the official God-appointed head of this community, the name Israel is used. Whenever it is the individual man, Jacob, Jacob is used. And so... When God speaks to him, he says, Jacob, Jacob, and he says, here am I, because it's God who is dealing with him as an individual. It says that, I'm looking at chapter 45, verses 27 and 28. This would be a good example of the contrast. After the brothers come back up from Egypt the second time and tell them that they found Joseph alive and that Joseph has invited him down to Egypt, it says in 45:27, When they spoke to him all of Joseph's words which he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him down, their father Jacob's spirit came to life. In other words, as an individual. And then Israel said, Enough, Joseph my son is still alive. I must go and see him before I die. Israel said, 
means he is speaking for the entire community. He's saying we're all going to go down there. Now that's important because here in verse 3 it doesn't say Jacob loved Joseph above all his sons. It says Israel loved Joseph above all his sons. This is not talking about his personal affection for Joseph. It's talking about his decision as the head of the clan to prefer Joseph above all the sons. And that's important because this is all covenantal objective language here. It's not primarily subjective and personal. Hatred, speaking in peace, love, these are all covenantal objective terms that carry emotional freight, but that's not the important thing about it. I've got down here, Israel is used because Jacob is acting as head of the clan, as God's appointed leader. If it said Jacob loved Joseph more than the rest, it would indicate a personal preference. The use of Israel makes the love objective and covenantal. In context, it seems that God's representative, that is Israel, loves Joseph more because Joseph tells the truth and does not deceive him. Thus, I don't think the text intends for us to fault Israel for this decision. Now then again, that's against the commentators. You read this passage, you read it with our psychological understanding of the passage, and we say, ah, he played favorites with his sons, he loved Joseph because he loved his mother more, and he was always doing nicer things for Joseph, always giving him bigger present at Christmas, and so the other brothers resented it, and then we can preach a sermon on how you all not to play favorites with your kids and say a bunch of things that are true, but probably don't have a lot to do with this passage. Because this doesn't say Jacob did all this. It says Israel did, and when the name Israel is used, it is official. The word love here means elect. We've all heard sermons about foreknowledge and what love means in the New Testament. God loves us and how it has to do with election more than it has to do with emotion, although it's both. Well, that's what's going on here. We'll get back to that. It says that he was a son of old age to him. Well, that doesn't mean Joseph was the youngest because he wasn't the youngest. The Bible is quite clear that he was not the youngest son. It means Israel counted him as special because he was born of a miracle like Isaac. That's why he's listed last because God miraculously opened the womb and he's the miracle son whereas all the rest are natural sons. And this language is picked up from chapter 21, verses 2 and 7. I'll just read them. Sarah became pregnant and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the time God had spoken to him, and in verse 7, Sarah said, Who would have declared to Abraham, Sarah will nurse sons? Well, I have borne him a son in his old age. Well, that was literally true. (laughs) They were old by this time. Not as old as you might think, since they lived to be about 175 years old, and they were about 100 at this point. They were really just a little bit past middle age. But it says that she had gone through change of life, so they were old in that sense. But that tells us that the son of the old age is Isaac. And the one who is born of a miracle, unlike Ishmael. And this is an allusion back to Isaac. There's no way to make sense of it otherwise. Literally speaking, Joseph wasn't born later than the others. Benjamin is the son of the old age, and later on, Benjamin is called the son of their father's old age. But it means that in a legal and official sense, again, we're talking official, 
objective covenantal language in this particular passage. This is another evidence of it. In an official legal sense, he's considered son of the old age, which means he's like Isaac and he's like a miracle son. Now, I think that we could just stop for a second and think about Joseph as a second Isaac, because we get a few insights. Remember that Isaac provided water to the Gentiles after being opposed to them. Isaac was driven by a famine down into the Philistine territory, and he dug all those wells, and they fought him over the wells, and finally they made a covenant with him, and they all had a well together. Parallel to that, Joseph is driven down into Gentile territory, and he provides food to them. I really meant to write the word bread here, because it's the word bread that's used over and over again. But these are similar, similar kinds of activities that the two are involved in. And then I've pointed out to you before, chronologically, the death of Isaac immediately precedes Joseph's elevation to Pharaoh's right hand. Joseph is in prison. The year before he gets out, Isaac dies. It's just right there in the chronology if you just lay out everything on a chart. And it's as if Joseph becomes a new Isaac at that point. Also, when you look at Genesis, you find that Abraham and Jacob are parallel in a lot of ways. They dwell in the same three places, Shechem, Bethel, and Hebron. Those are the places that they settle and camp in. And they have a parallel in their sons. Ishmael is born naturally of one wife. Then Isaac is born miraculously of the first wife. In Jacob's case, ten sons are born naturally of the second wives. And then... One son is born miraculously of the preferred wife. And so this phrase here asks us to think of parallels between Isaac and Joseph. Isaac is the son who fails to remain faithful. Joseph is the son who does remain faithful. And so just as Jacob is a replacement for Isaac, we looked at that at length years ago when we first started this series, so Joseph is also kind of a new Isaac a new son of a new Abraham. Well, what about this special tunic here? Whether Jacob himself made the tunic or had it made, it's not specified by the language. It could be read either way. We could think of Jacob weaving this himself. I'm sure men knew how to do this stuff in the ancient world. But whether he actually did it himself or had one of the thousands of servants in his clan to do it, we don't know. It doesn't matter. It's not a coat of many colors. Multicolored is not in Hebrew. It comes from the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. There's no basis in the Hebrew for that translation. So it's kind of sad. It's always nice to think of it as rainbow colored and is linking up with the rainbow and other things. But unless somebody really comes up with some interesting explanation of the Hebrew, no scholar thinks that the Hebrew has anything to do with colors. So that part of it we have to drop out of our thinking, although it's never going to disappear from Sunday school leaflets, I don't think. It'll always be drawn that way in spite of the fact that it's not that way. Just like there are always going to be three wise men, even though we know that there could have been 50 wise men. We have no idea how many wise guys there were. Three gifts, but how many men? We don't know. Well... The meaning of the Hebrew adjective is unknown. It may refer to a garment that stretches to the palms or to the feet. The word is a tunic that is pasim, and nobody knows exactly what pas means. In post-biblical Hebrew, pas is used for the palm or the sole of the foot. But that's 1,500 years after this event. So whether that meaning can be stretched all the way back down in history to this, 
The Hebrew Bible itself doesn't use this word pass for palm. Nobody knows exactly sure, but the best guess comparing it to Akkadian and Ugaritic and everything else seems to be that that is close, if not a cigar, that it's a garment that stretches down to the end of your arm or all the way down to your feet. The only other time this phrase is used in the Bible is in 2 Samuel 13, 18, and 19. And it's the garment worn by David's daughters. It says that Tamar was wearing a long tunic, a coat of many colors, when she was attacked and raped by her brother Amnon. So it's the princesses who are wearing it there. It is connected with authority and royalty. And that's about as much as we can say directly about the special tunic. The word tunic itself only appears in connection with authority and usually is part of the priestly garments. You just take out a concordance and look up. You can't do it with an English concordance. But if you had a Hebrew concordance, which I do, of course, and you look up the word tunic in Hebrew, ketonet, the word even has a little bit of the sound tunic because tunic is, of course, a Roman Latin word, so they're similar in the ancient world. Ketonic, look it up, and every time it's used in the Bible, it's used for garments of the priest or royal type garments. It occurs seven times in this passage, which is always significant. Exactly seven times this word tunic appears in Genesis 37, climaxing, of course, with the torn tunic being brought to Jacob for his inspection. And the only other time in Genesis is in Genesis 3.21, where it says God made tunics for Adam and Eve out of animal skins. Now, the fact the word tunic has this royal connotation, authority, sheds some light back on Genesis 3. I have always assumed that God killed these animals and put animal skins on Adam and Eve, and that was humiliation. They're being treated like beasts somehow, or... But the only idea is that an animal dies so that they don't have to die and they're covered with the animal skins. But it's not just that. The fact that the word tunic is used instead of some other more general word indicates that even though these are made of skins and, of course, an animal does die to provide them, he's still treating them in part along the lines of this royal status that they have seized by eating the forbidden fruit. They weren't supposed to. They weren't supposed to make themselves into authorities, but they've done so. And God says, Behold, a man has become like one of us. And so he gives them a tunic, which signifies the kind of authority that they should have waited for, but have wrongfully seized. And of course, if you don't know it, John 19, 23-24, the robe that Jesus had that was taken off when he was put on the cross, that was seamless, is this tunic. That's the high priest's tunic, which was seamless, almost unquestionably. The royal tunics of the princesses and Joseph's special tunic was also the same kind of thing. And, of course, Jesus' tunic is torn off of him, and then they gamble for it. And that just is a fulfilling what happens to Joseph when his tunic is torn off of him and the brothers do stuff with it. So the parallels are pregnant here. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the typology of having the special tunic torn off of you. Well, we can end this, I think, in time by looking at the last things. It says, when the brothers saw that it was he whom their father loved above all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak to him in peace. 
Again, our tendency is to read this psychologically and leave it there. Whatever psychological aspect might be there, that's not the primary meaning. These are terms that in the Bible routinely have objective and covenantal meanings. Love is covenantal election. Hate is covenantal rejection. And peace is covenantal fellowship. Just remind you of some instances of the use of the word hate in the Bible that show this. Jacob hates Leah. That doesn't mean that he disliked her. Obviously, he slept with her enough times to give her seven children. It meant that he rejected his covenantal relationship with her as first wife and loved Rachel instead. Rachel is elected. That's what love means in this context. And Leah is rejected as first wife, even though she was the first person he married, the first person he slept with. Doesn't mean he disliked her. Love and hate have this objective meaning which can take on an emotional connotation, but doesn't have to. Sure, some days he liked her and some days he didn't. That's the way life is in reality. And some days these brothers got along fine with Joseph, and some days they resented him, depending on what was in their minds. In the second commandment, it says, those who worship through images hate God. I'll pour out my wrath of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That doesn't mean they dislike God. You go to Roman Catholics, they think they love God, and I guess maybe they do in some emotional sense, but they also hate him when they pray through images. That means they have rejected the terms that he has specified for his worship. There's an objective meaning of the term, not an emotional meaning. We're told by Jesus we have to hate father and mother to be in the kingdom. That doesn't mean we dislike our parents, but that our covenant must be with God and the church, father and mother, and not with them. Here the meaning is that the brothers rejected the covenant status that Israel had bestowed upon Joseph. They probably came to dislike him more and more also, but even if they personally liked him, they rejected his position. There are probably times, I mean, these kids all grew up together. You know how kids are. They get mad at each other. They forget about it. There were probably plenty of times when they all had fun together and they were at peace with each other. But whenever this business of him being put in charge was concerned, they rejected that. They hated that. Hate usually also connotes emotional hatred. Usually, not always. And that's clearly the case here eventually. Eventually, they kill him. That's not just objective rejection. That's anger. And, of course, we are moving to the statement, they deeply resented him, which isn't emotional, not a covenantal language in verse 11. But right now, this is not primarily emotional language. Same with peace. Peace with God is an objective status. Even if husband and wife get along together, there is no real peace if the wife tries to be the head of the home. In other words, if you've got two people vying for authority, they may not come into conflict with each other very often, but that's just an example of the fact that true peace involves mutual recognition of and respect for hierarchy and status. Everybody's different. Everybody has a different place. You respect that place. Some people are over others. Some people are under others. There are a variety of relationships that are mutual and all the rest of it. But true peace involves mutual recognition of that. And that's what's happening here. You've got all these sons. They have different places within this society. And Joseph is being put over some of the other ones. And there can't be peace unless... Those hierarchical relationships are accepted. The brothers reject Joseph's status among them, and thus there is no peace. 
And finally, just to comment on the statement, they could not speak to him in peace. It could say they didn't live with him in peace, but they couldn't speak to him in peace. Of course, that means that they got mad whenever he tried to tell them to do anything. Maybe they couldn't speak to him peacefully at all. But remember, in Genesis, what happened with Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices, and God favored Abel, who was younger. And then after that, it says, Abel spoke with Cain in the field, and Cain killed him. Now, that's what this is alluding back to, especially as Genesis comes to an end and starts pointing back to the things that were at the beginning of Genesis. Israel has favored Joseph for a good reason. Joseph is honest, and the other brothers are not. And now, when they speak with each other, the tension rises, and it moves toward murder. That's exactly what happened in Genesis 4. In fact, it's kind of obscure in Genesis 4. It says they spoke to each other in the field, and then Cain rose up and killed Abel. And you think, what's going on there? Well, this story here kind of fills that in a little bit. It wasn't just that they had one conversation and Cain blew up and killed him. It's more likely that this is kind of an ongoing thing, just like Joseph here with his brothers, and finally it got to that point. At any rate, the parallels are back there to Cain and Abel. And that's where the story is going to go. So, for today, the main thing I want you to take away is don't read these three verses primarily as an emotional anger among the brothers. That's an aspect of it, but it's primarily a problem in community. You cannot have a bunch of brothers living together forming a fledgling nation unless some are in charge and some submit. And that is the tension that's being set up here as we move from just a family into a nation in the book of Genesis. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.